You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Modern Myth, the archaeology podcast that dares to be different. It's Tristan here, the anarchaeologist, and today's episode is a very interesting and special episode. I have a really, really great guest to talk to me about their experiences, um, and I want to kind of preface this all with, I, I feel sometimes in archaeology, especially in archaeological media, there are certain people who don't get to speak out, and I think... Um, especially within the mainstream traditional media platforms, uh, a lot of people, the, the same people, get talked to again and again. So my kind of endeavour over the next couple of months is to really broaden the spectrum of people who I talk to and engage with and discuss things from from their own perspectives. So I, a couple of weeks ago, I, um, I put a post on a Facebook group called the Enabled Archaeology uh, Foundation Group, and I was looking for people who had experiences uh, in archaeology that were maybe not talked about very much. And I was particularly interested in hearing from people who felt like, you know, the way they experienced things wasn't really on a podcast. It wasn't on a TV show. It wasn't really discussed. And a number of people did come back to me and I've had really, really good conversations with them uh, back and forth, back and forth with email. And... One of the people is Amy Nuttall, who is here with me today. Hello. So, Amy, I'll, I'll let you kind of introduce yourself. So, you're a student at the University of Sheffield. Yep, that's right. So, what particular bit of archaeology are you, like, specifically interested in? What's, what, what, if you look at archaeology, what's, what's the really interesting bit for you? Um, well, my degree program is uh, cultural materials, so we focus on um, the actual artifacts and the materials. Um, and we, on my course, we focus on ceramics and metallurgy, but particularly, I'm interested in metallurgy. Okay, so like um, making bronze and stuff like that. Yeah, so we um, we've done a couple of furnace smelts and made some uh, iron actually the first time, um, which is really interesting, um, and we're testing out different ways of doing that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So why did you even why sorry <laughs> I'll rephrase that <laughs> why why does anybody why does anybody do archaeology so what what made you choose to do study archaeology in the first place um, in the first place um I always 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 wanted to be an archaeologist um my mom and dad took me to a lot of stone circles and stuff like that as a kid I was the kid at the illegal raves with the hippie parents at three years old um in stone circles and stuff and places that we shouldn't have really been but we've always had time team on the telly when I was growing up and stuff like that and I always wanted to be an archaeologist so I managed to cling on to that dream um and do my undergrad in it and I've just continued so wow I mean that that's really a good start because a lot of people I hear uh there's certainly a generation of archaeologists who uh say that Indiana Jones was their main kind of like foray into archaeology um I'm, I'm really glad that you've got you've brought presented us a different option because um, <laughs> I feel like archaeology shouldn't just be interested in like what's happening on the tv or what films are about archaeologists I, I really like 
the family story where, you know, you were just around a lot of stone circles and, well, <laughs> that's it. Hippie parents in the 90s, that was it. Do you have a favourite stone circle? Don't Ooh, say don't Stonehenge, no, please. No, not my favourite. Um, Penny Nine Ladies. We've been to a couple of parties and stuff there um, when I was growing up and it's, it's very special. Uh, for the geographically challenged of us, like myself, where is Nine Ladies? Oh, God. Hang on. I don't know. <laughs> <I'm Googling that>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so in Stanton Moor in Derbyshire. Oh, lovely, lovely. <laughs> I, I don't know where Derbyshire is, but I will look it up on a map as well. Um, so what, what what in particular do you like about that stone circle? What's what, what's special about it? Um, I don't know. I think you don't hear about it. It's one of the unsung ones, maybe. Um but um, it's such a... It's the underdog. It's yeah, the underdog, underdog of stone circles. Yeah. I've just had a lot of stories when I was growing up about parties that we've been to there. So it's the one that I've heard about. And we've revisited it and revisited it. Um, and it's very lovely. I like making the joke. You know how um, it's always like, oh, this is uh, such and such as Stonehenge. And it's almost like Stonehenge is the archetypal like stone circle. I love flipping it and being like, well, it's almost like... England's Ness of Brogar, you know? Like, flip it around a bit. <laughs> I think it's the worst one, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> There's just so many better stones, though. There's one with some with, like, the recumbent stones um, in mm-hmm. Scotland, and... Um, there's a thing, I don't know if you've seen this, where they're on a standstill moon, which happens like once every blue moon, um, mm-hmm. you can see the full moon will like fall out of the side of one stone, across the recumbent fallen over stone, and disappear behind the next one. I think that there's so many amazing things like that happening at stone circles, and like it kind of happens at Stonehenge, but not really. I don't know why it's the main, it's just because it's big. I find it really, I, I do find that really interesting though, that there seems to be a inherent or intrinsic value that people place upon monuments in terms of heritage like it doesn't take very much to kind of show somebody who's not really interested in history um or has isn't knowledgeable about history you can show them a monument and they understand that like that was that's ancient it's got that like ancient feel to it it's definitely it's such a good way of showing the public archaeology because you're undeniably standing in the middle of something that's Neolithic and you can't escape it. If, you, if I hand you a pot, you'll be like, oh, it's a pot. But if I put you in the middle of a stone circle, absolutely flooded and you're in that environment and you can't escape that and you you have to acknowledge the history. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I think we need to have more people in stone circles. It does. It sounds a little cultish, to be fair. Um, <laughs> let's ride them up and put them, them to in. climb on the stones. Yeah, that is a problem, isn't it? <laughs> you know what we should do? Have you have you ever seen people who like uh what's they called? They put like grease on the like bird feeder poles in their gardens and they watch the squirrels try and you know, like climb up it. I think we should just grease like the stone circles <laughs> and just watch as people like try and you know, clamber over them and <laughs> you slip can off. That idea to English heritage. <laughs> I don't think they're going to listen to me. I don't know. It was something, it was something about some of my ideas about public archaeology. I don't think they'd listen. Um, <laughs> but I think, um, I mean, uh, you've now, like, how was your, uh, like, what was your final dissertation in your undergrad? What, what was that subject of that? What did you do? Um, I studied, um, so there was an assemblage in the local museum of 
like mm-hmm. 200 odd um, Patagonian arrowheads uh, from like loads of different material, loads of different areas and stuff. But nobody knew how they arrived in a museum in Bangor, North Wales. Um, so I was doing like a little bit of detective work and trying to work backwards from that. And I linked it to uh, Pitt Rivers. I don't know if you know mm-hmm. Pitt Rivers, like one of those oh, yeah. big influential yeah. archaeologist guys. Yeah. Um, so I linked it back to him and he married a girl and wound up staying in Penryn Castle, which is in Bangor as well. Um, and I'm pretty sure that he brought those over or, or a friend brought them over and gave them to him. Um, and then they wound up in this museum. But so I was on like a, a weird hunt after these Patagonian arrowheads across the, uh, across the planet. So, um, yeah, I think I think it was OK. That's really cool. And it's weird you saying Bangor because like I grew up in the other Bangor. Uh, I grew up in the Northern Irish Bangor. Um, <laughs> so I'm always like, I always feel like a rivalry between me and the other Bangor. <laughs> I mean, I said, oh yeah, I, grew, I come from Bangor and I swear somebody said to me, oh, in Wales. I'm like, do I sound Welsh to you, mate? <laughs> you know, you just put on the, you put on more of the Northern Irish accent when somebody accuses you of being another nationality. <sighs> We're, we're the better banker anyway, so. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, obviously, I contacted the uh, Enabled Archaeology find, uh, group because I wanted to hear people's uh, stories um, who maybe, like, had didn't have their perspectives, their voices told. Now, you said in the email that you kind of were quite open, you wanted to kind of maybe share your experiences with having ADHD and how that kind of impacted and has affected the way in which you've done your degree and you kind of live your life because uh, and so I just want to put the kind of floor to you and say you know um, in what ways um, do you feel that people don't understand ADHD what are the kind of myths that are there and you know what do people think about it from your perspective? People think that um, those with ADHD are not going to sit down and not going to listen and going to butt in constantly and not have any interest in reading and spending time doing things um, that involve um, like traditional academic things, like traditional settings. So sitting down at a desk and reading books for hours and hours and hours on end. I think that that's um, something that people hear over and over and over again about ADHD and so do people with ADHD so we end up not going into university and dispelling those myths because we're listening to those myths um, and it becomes its own like self-fulfilling prophecy kind of thing. I, I, as I understand it um, things like ADHD are very much dependent on the individual they're, they're always like a different kind of experience for everyone when did you kind of know that something was different or when did you know that you had ADHD? Uh, I'm very fortunate that my mom is a behavioural specialist, um, so I knew that from a pretty early age, but I was only diagnosed when I was 16, um, because we realised that I did want to go to university and dispel all of those myths, um, so I needed a diagnosis to get the help that I would need to be able to get through university and my A-levels. When uh, when you talk about um, the diagnosis helping, um, what kind of happened after that diagnosis? Like what, what, what were, what were you then able to be, how were you then enabled through that diagnosis to better kind of like, to help you? Like what happened then? Um, well, they started me off on some medication, which, um, makes me like, you can sit, you take in the morning and then you feel a bit more like you can sit down and you can focus and it slows your brain down. When you've got ADHD, it's like living with a thousand mile an hour brain. So the, 
the medicine sort of just helps ease that. But um, I stopped taking it after a while because it does get rid of your appetite. Um, and mm-hmm. it kind of makes you... It, it's like being a zombie for weeks and weeks and weeks on end because you're taking it every day. Um, and you don't sleep properly because it's a, it's a stimulant. So I stopped taking that and wound up uh, just relying on help, like social help. So I would have a mentor uh, in the college that I was at before I went to uni. Um, and I'd go and see her on a Monday morning and we would write lists about um, what kind of things I'd be achieving that week, how many words I might put on this essay um, and stuff like that. And just to sort of pace myself and stay grounded um, and check in with her every week. And I've had all I've had the same support just like that all the way through my undergrad and also into my master's now. And it's um, much better than medication. I've not taken medication since my A-levels. And that's the way that I've got through. If you had one thing to say to people who didn't know about ADHD or had those preconceptions about them, what's, what's the one message that you would have for those people um, who just don't know about ADHD? What, what, what one thing would be beneficial, do you think, for them to know? Um, I think I'm a walking contradiction. I think that I would ask them to look because there's loads of us um, that have got degrees and we've got ADHD. So it's, it's not something that's a barrier to academia anymore. Um, and we can do it. So um, I'm just wondering, obviously, like from my perspective, um, when I did archaeology at university, I did a couple of like digging a few pots in the field and stuff like that. Uh, but I didn't actually do that much field work. I didn't go to a field school or anything like that. Um, well, how was how was your experience of university? Did you go on a lot of digs? Did you do a lot of digging? Uh, yeah, Bangor University has its own dig at a site called Mechlionis, which is a, a double <laughs> double ringwork monument mm-hmm. on the top of a hill. Um, dates to the Iron Age, um, and there's no uh, there's the soil in North Wales is very acidic, so there's no actual finds. But uh, Ray Carl are um, our site director there was able to like uh, show us how to fill out all the paperwork and uh, dig properly and um, stuff like that and he did turf architecture with us where he would after we'd de-turfed the site we would build like a roundhouse so that everybody could sit in it every day and have lunch in this turf roundhouse it was wonderful I think he's just released a book about how to make them um, I've got very fond memories of that field school I camped the entire time on the on the Hlin Peninsula which is a very windy and cold place so oh I spent God. one month camping on my own because <laughs> I was absolutely adamant that I wasn't going to spend four hours on a coach every day um, <laughs> so I was like cooking meals in a little tranger um, in the evenings and then getting a lift onto the site every day being completely knackered but I love it that's amazing that's such an experience <laughs> as well um everyone else well, had the sense to go on the coach but <laughs> oh really were you like... it's just me i'm oh, like fake <laughs> so what um what, what what tip what top tips for living in a tent on the welsh coast do you have <laughs> oh god need definitely need a good tent that tent died after that trip um <laughs> just because it'd been so battered by the wind um, but like ski outfits, I think, are, are key. Um, even our site director, Ray Carl, when it gets a bit cold, he, he changes from his three-piece suit into a ski outfit um, with Austria written on the back, because he's Austrian. Um, mm-hmm. So I think ski outfits in the Clint Peninsula are definitely something not to be separated. Oh, that's amazing. And if, if you don't mind me asking, like, what were you, what were you able to cook when you were out there? You oh, said a lot. Every time I got back from the site, the, bloody, the shop was shut. So I just I had people like bringing me tinned food in, <laughs> um, just cooking like that. I really don't know why I did that. <laughs> hey, every experience is definitely worth something, <laughs> like, you know. Field school. 
what is that part of a wider like is there wider structures past that double ring fort or is that really the main base so there's that that one's kind of the main one they've been in a lot of work on this recently um so that's a, a ring work enclosing i think there was like 27 roundhouses or something like that um that were they were the rocks that we were digging up was the walls of that i should have specified but um so there's that and then from that site if you start because it's on a hill if you stand there you can see quite a few other of these monuments of the same style but smaller um so we mm-hmm. think that there's a bit of a culture um of these monuments going on that's interesting ring monuments from the iron age are quite interesting and actually one of the episodes uh that will be released by the time this is out is uh, with the Caithness brock project oh. i don't know if you're familiar with brocks a little bit yeah, the two guys from the Keith Ness Brock project, they uh they're they're very big about their stone monument ring things. Um I'm quite I'm I must say it's it, it's interesting because um um all across Britain you have these interesting monuments that we're coming back to monuments again yeah. uh, that seem to kind of um capture something in the archaeological imagination. I'd be interested to know, as we mentioned about monumental archaeology being interesting for the public um you said it's a four-hour coach ride is it kind of out in the middle of nowhere uh yeah it's a, it's a two-hour there two-hour back coach ride so um, you're not really getting too many punter local punters kind of kicking yeah. around <laughs> it's near uh Abadaran. i don't know if you're familiar, familiar with the Shlim peninsula but um it's definitely in the middle of nowhere but it's like the most beautiful beach um is right next door to mechianis um, and there's campsites and all sorts. It's a proper little tourist town, um, but people will go and stay. It's kind of near Abbasok, so people will go and stay and be going back from Abbasok and Abadaran. So there's lots of like sailing, surfing. So it's not quite in the middle of nowhere, but it's definitely far from Bangor. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Oh, it's, it's, ah, I love I love the seaside. I'm a big fan of the seaside, and uh, I'm, always, I'm always up for a good little bit of sailing. I can't surf, though can surf the web but not the sea unfortunately <laughs> yeah i'll add it to the list of things i need to do <laughs> um <laughs> from what you've kind of done through university so far why what do you think archaeology could be doing better as a kind of an air a subject area and academia what could it be doing better to support people um who have adhd or who have like I think the term is neurodivergent kind of like kind of ways of thinking. Um, are there things that you think that archaeology stuff could do better? Um, yeah, I think that archaeology could really, in terms of like the academic side of archaeology, could be following the way that Bangor and Sheffield have chosen to do it. I went to those universities because I saw um, the way that they were teaching and thought, well, that worked for me. Because Bangor goes on a lot of field work trips, and um, we're constantly going on study and um, oh, cod, what are they called field trips. We're con- at Bangor University. We're constantly going on field trips, um, to see like stone circles or like little monuments or have a look at some coast that was a bit interesting, um, because it's absolutely shed loads of archaeology around that area, and it's really easy to get to. So we were constantly doing that, and that was really helpful. That's definitely the way that I learned is to look at things and think about them and be in them. Um, which is we're coming back to the effect of monumental archaeology again um and then sheffield university i went to because you can see um 
on their website they're doing videos of smelting and they're out there and people are in the lab making bits of ceramic um stuff and um we're learning photography by using the microscopes not thinking about the microscopes and stuff like that so it's so hands-on and I think that archaeology should be that because archaeology is a hands-on discipline um, but I see a lot of universities seem to be trying to make it into like an essay-based um like very academic uh, thing and I think that's to do with like the self-esteem of archaeology at the moment it thinks that it's being phased out it's not cool anymore and it's an expensive hobby rather than an actual discipline and stuff like that um but I think that everybody could really be following the trend um of Bangor and Sheffield Beaten. Um, um, I want to pick up on that, um, the feeling of archaeology as an expensive hobby, because uh, unfortunately for me, um, archaeology is an expensive hobby, um, because I I started doing archaeology jobs, uh, and I f- finished doing archaeology jobs very quickly, because I just wasn't in the place to be going around the country, jumping from job to job to job, from week to week to week, and I just, I, it wasn't for me, which, I mean, you know, this is, these are the decisions you have to make. And I think I always, I always worry that archaeology is very narrow in what it understands and accepts. And especially because like nowadays, um, it feels very much that like planning policy hangs by a thread. There's a kind of there's a kind of move to well you know we we don't need all these regulations we don't need all these like checks and balances and hey if we you know dig up a roman grave site you know we've got lots of those there, there, there's on the on the kind of legislative political side of things i think archaeology needs to make a better voice for itself and uh, i just i mean i come from a i i fell in love with archaeological theory that's like that's what kept me going uh when i started reading about like ian hodder shanks and tilly um (laughs) like you know really seriously that that's the little blue book for me like i've read it like seven or eight times like i can probably start (laughs) but that that that's what changed it for me because i actually came in as a chemistry um in a chemistry degree and i actually was converted to archaeology with chemistry by the end of it um and that was because of archaeological theory but then when i went on site it was like what's the point of archaeological theory i'm like because it's important to know about what we do we're digging in the ground you know and i think there's this weird kind of juggling act that archaeology does between people who identify as oh well i'm just digging in the ground and i'm going to find some stuff and people who are like talking about the esoteric ramifications of categorizing and taxonomies of death you know these two things are really interesting for me you know and the way they work together but as you've pointed out i think there is uh there is a little bit of a crisis in archaeology in so much as it's very much if you don't do a a degree in archaeology it's very unlikely you're going to go and get into archaeology um from from your undergrad uh, class i mean are there a lot of people doing their masters or um are they doing other work do you do you keep in contact with them not as far as i know i'm not really in contact with any of them but there's only seven of us i think in my undergrad mm-hmm. year of just archaeology um Mm-hmm. which is the course that I was on obviously um, but as far as I know I don't think anyone's actually really got onto anything I know a few people dropped out 
and a few people went on to do other things but mm-hmm. I think I, it might just be me but I don't really want to I don't want to say that and then no that <laughs> <laughs> it's okay like that's that's what happens I, I I feel like there should never be a barrier to people who want to study something who want to go and work somewhere I don't think there should be artificial barriers and I think that if there are you know like other barriers that we should be you know removing those barriers and making it paving the way for everybody to have that opportunity to engage in what they want to engage with um and i'm always interested to hear how people imagine archaeology could improve in some way um and obviously, I, I've sat on committees for the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists uh, for last six years. I've been at a number of the conferences. Um, I've like heard people talk about um, archaeology as a commercial endeavor as well as like an academic one. And I think I think archaeology is in this in-between state, you know, I, I feel like um, there's a lot of people who are seeing it as a dichotomy, you know, uh, people are saying, well, you're either in academia or you're commercial, and there doesn't seem to be the enough variety. So for me, making things better for people who have maybe before now find it difficult to get into archaeology, paving the way and making it easier for those kind of people to come in and fresh ideas, fresh blood, fresh understanding. I think that can actually be very, very good in moving the needle on certain issues in archaeology. One of those issues being that I think, um, as Teresa Mahoney, who founded the Enabled Archaeology Foundation, uh, said, and her research showed that people who had disabilities or were not uh, either neurotypical or, um, you know, they, they were actively discriminated against in both the job market and otherwise and um, inadvertently discriminated against in other ways because people had assumptions about them. Um, yeah, but <laughs> um, it's okay. Why are you saying that? I thought about the way that if you're asking me, to comment on that um i was just thinking i don't feel that i can comment on that but i wonder if that's part of the issues that i don't feel that um i can comment on that because if i do then i might come across as like an arrogant ma student because i've only just got my undergrad so i'm like fresh out um and i don't like to comment on things particularly too much i've started to join in on museum tower to like try and combat that because i don't know if it's me or if it's archaeology that's making me feel like i shouldn't be commenting um, okay okay to talk Okay, talk to me about talk to me about museums are. <laughs> museums are. Don't ask me what museums are. I'm still, I'm still so shy on that. I've like come out with a few things, um, but I found myself repeating the same thing over and over and over again. But I'm so excited that I finally found somewhere that I can like have an opinion without sounding like horrendously arrogant. Um, because I've only just finished my undergrad. I don't think that I should. I don't really. I haven't had time to form any opinions yet, and I haven't mm-hmm. been encouraged to have any. Um. Because like it's like encouraging a toddler to have opinions. That's what it feels like when you're fresh out of your undergrad, I suppose. Do you know what's really funny you saying that? Because um, well, one of my last episodes, I spoke to Rosie Loftus, who 
um, is one of the admins for the Mentoring Women in Archaeology and Heritage Groups, who talked actually at length about imposter syndrome and how sometimes people feel like they're unable or unskilled enough to actually contribute to a conversation and to talk. And, like, I I think at the end of my undergrad is when I started this podcast and I had a lot of opinions, which I still hold, actually, funny <laughs> enough. And I was okay saying them because um, I was enthused and I was, I was energized to have make a platform. You know, like I've done podcasts now, um, not archaeology ones, but podcasting in general for twelve years, uh, maybe thirteen years. I've done it for a long time, and so for me, I know how to put together a platform. I know what to do to kind of like put the editing together, what to say, how to keep it interesting, what questions to ask, how to draw somebody in. And like, because I've had those skills and I've taken time to hone them, it means when I do have a thing to talk about and think about, I'm okay saying it. But I need to sometimes feel like, I need to sometimes not say things, if you get what I mean. Like sometimes it's better for me to create a platform for somebody rather than to be the one, only one talking. So I'm quite interested, what sort of things do you like talking about on museums are that you don't usually feel like you can say? Um, um, so there was one, I actually missed the one that was on disability the other week, um, probably mm-hmm. because of my disability. But, <laughs> um, but the one this week was on, um, I think it was International Museums Day. Uh, it was yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, so people were talking about like how can we improve museums and how can we um, like move forward Um after this situation lifted, sorry, I don't want to talk about that. Um, <laughs> it's okay, you can mention it. <laughs> um, shall I say that again? <laughs> no, no, you can say. No, you can say it. It's okay. So, what, what, what do you think? What, what, what do you think museums can do better? Like, what? I mean, for me personally, museums, as we know them today, I think fundamentally need to change in both structure and form. I think, I mean, okay, take the exa- this example, right? I've got a museum. I've got, you know, 10,000 items in the museum, okay? I take all 10,000 items out of that one building and I put it in another building, arranged in a similar way. Is the original building the museum or is it the collection of items arranged in a certain way the museum? That's a really good question. And from that, I would kind of posit that I would argue that the building is technically part of the experience of a museum. But this idea that the museum is a set, defined thing, like an object, I think is the problem. (laughs) I think that we're always trying to build a museum to a set specification. You know, we're trying to box it into this is a museum, this is not a museum. And I think what it what it means is that these structures that the museum forms, you know, like you've got your 
visitor welcoming staff, then you've got your curators, then you've got your senior creators, then you've got conservators. You've got this hierarchical structure within the museum that reflects upon itself the idea that certain people have to be in charge of other people to manage other people to manage other people and somebody is at the (laughs) top. And sometimes I feel as if, because people feel that's a natural way of organising things, that then bleeds into the interpretations and the presentations within the museums. So I would actually like to see a museum that doesn't, that works to undo those kind of assumptions and presents itself and actually operates itself in a different way. I mean, we all know about museums or we can see the idea of a museum playing up to a certain kind of like fad but not actually doing anything, you know, like, for example, you know, uh, disowning fossil fuel companies, but at the same time, you know, taking money from funds in fossil fuel kind of stocks, you know, things like that kind of, you're doing it for the, for the show. And I'm actually interested to see how museums survive after this. Um, what, what do Definitely. you think? What do you think about a museum? What is a what is a museum to you? Um, I absolutely love museums, but one of the things that I was thinking about on museums hour yesterday is that I feel quite a lot of guilt when I'm in a museum, and it's because um, when you're walking around and you're looking at the exhibits and there's your object, and then below it there's some information that's printed on a piece of paper, not useful when you have an ADHD. And I look terrible when I'm trying to focus on a museum, but I'm looking at my phone every five seconds because I'm not really getting enough stimulation or like um, I'm looking away and I'm spending three seconds looking at something and then going off to something else. But then one thing I'll spend five minutes looking at because that's the thing that I'm super interested in. But it's not because I wasn't interested in everything else. It's because it just wasn't done in a captivating way. The, the kind of museums that will captivate me are things with stimulating um, like ways of um, t- talking to the public about what's going on. So um, I'm really enjoying the use of technology museums at the moment. Um, where screens are a bit more um, a bit more commonplace um, with more like color and bright and movement and like interactive exhibits and I hate that some of that is seen as just for kids and um, when it's not I think that that could be used for all adults and I think that most teenagers if you ask them not children um, will find museums boring it's because you're either a museum for children or you're a museum for adults and there doesn't seem to be this middle ground where you're a museum for people that want to be engaged I don't want to read white on uh, black on white text constantly. Um, so I think that museums will definitely be... I think that in the current situation, museums are being pushed to work online and in that interactive way um, to make things engaging for the public that aren't actually in the museum. And I think that that's going to translate in a really interesting way when we move back into the museum um, because we'll be encouraged to use that technology again because mm-hmm. um, we've got used to it now. So I think that's Do you cool. not worry... Do not worry that after this situation, which we will not mention, um, that like it'll just go back to normal. Like I, I, I love the fact that people are engaging with new technology, but I'm always concerned that things, people are waiting thing for things to go back to normal, and they just want oh, to go yeah. back to the everyday. And... Yeah, but normal wasn't good. Mm-hmm. It, was, it wasn't it was fundamentally it wasn't. flawed in that almost every direction that you look at especially in terms of museums so we've, we've not moved we've got this traditional idea of a museum that came about after like victorian curio cabinets and we've just made those cabinets bigger and put like little text and numbers next to them um, and it's not worked it's still not working 100 
50 years on um, and we've not changed it so we're just going to go back to that and carry on it doesn't suit everybody this show is very very much pro repatriation of everything in every museum um i don't know what's your view on repatriation uh, i'm very pro repatriation um us. definitely think that we should be just sending everything back it's ridiculous that we've even gone on this long ah but 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 if you send one thing back you send everything back Good. yes send everything back <laughs> then we won't have anything in the museum which is really upsetting because like <laughs> you know you've actually worked on sites in the uk that could be in a museum um i mean obviously it'd be good to for those sites to be in a welsh museum rather than the British Museum. But um, maybe that's one of the problems is that the British Museum is such a focal point that other museums are not getting the access and the funding. Um, I always find it a very disingenuous kind of argument that, well, if you put it in the British Museum, so many more people will get to see it. Yeah. (laughs) But But I think it comes back to, you know, when you were talking about uh, the stone circles and, you, with your quote-unquote your words hippie parents <laughs> um sorry um i think um i think those memories are personal and they're much more powerful i mean there's a lot of different i feel like there's di- there's a difference between seeing artifacts from faraway lands captured under colonial rule and brought here and you're preserving them you know, as opposed to being from those places and seeing the history of your own kind of country and your your own history, in a sense. Um, I mean, yeah, I think like I, when you think... take children to museums and you show them something that's from Greece five thousand years ago, like Egypt is kind of an exception. Everyone seems to identify with that kind of stuff. Well, not identify with it, but definitely mm-hmm. engage with it. But stuff from like random countries and random time periods, not that they're not important. It's just that they're mm-hmm. not important to ten year olds. Um and these are the people that we're like planting the seeds in and we're trying to get uh, inspired to become archaeologists and the next generation and all of that. And what's the point um in having that kind of like interactive exhibit that's aimed at children um if they're not um presenting something that's actually going to engage them and inspire them? Yeah, what? Why doesn't Benjamin? Why isn't Benjamin interested in the thirteenth century farmers in Bordeaux? Like, <laughs> hey, hey, those are really. In, I don't. I don't even know. That's one of the examples I use. Is thirteenth century farmers in Bordeaux, in France? Like, I want to know. Has anybody researched them? What can you tell me about them? It's like the same thing as the other challenge I have for people is the archaeology of brushing teeth, and. I, I've asked that consistently for years. And actually, last September, <laughs> I said, oh, you know, these kind of interesting questions like the archaeology of brushing teeth. And somebody's like, oh, I know somebody's actually done that. I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> what? <laughs> um, you know, these, these are interesting questions or like the archaeology of tea, you know, obviously colonial practice as well. But uh, in China, obviously, you have thousands uh, thousands of years of history of tea and that's something that's a, like a, day, a thing that people come in contact with day and day um, but I don't think people really think about the history that's involved there that teeth brushing thing's got me do you know with 
people have started using wooden toothbrushes. If you were digging a site where the toothbrushes were laid out really well in, stri in the stratigraphy, then you would think that people started to use toothbrushes less because the wooden toothbrushes would have decomposed by then. So you'd be like, oh, these people have stopped brushing their teeth so much. This must be a cultural difference. <laughs> cultural <laughs> difference, yeah. No, the, the, the a change has happened. <laughs> was it the toaster tradition for burials <laughs> uh, like that joke yeah bury with a toaster so that when archaeologists dig us up you know they'll be like "Ooh, the toaster tradition they were buried with their favorite you know like items i'm gonna swallow a key i want to know what happened because <laughs> 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 they'll be excavating you and they'll just be like a key <laughs> like, what is what the key is for <laughs> But it it doesn't it doesn't unlock anything, no. and so it's forever a mystery. And then you're on whatever is the equivalent of the ancient aliens, ancient aliens of the twenty first century, you know. Uh, it's like, <laughs> but you see that speculative fiction is so fun with archaeology. I think it's such a great way of um, playing around with history because I I really really absolutely hate this kind of like. Um, history as a as a like a set event oh this is what happened this person said this this person thought this and this is what they did and ta-da that's what happened you know it, it, this kind of weird kind of like that's just how it is history which it's not but it's not <laughs> well it's easy to digest it's easy to absorb and people don't have to engage with it you know they can just listen you know it's like fast yeah, it's like food fast history yeah <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any pet peeves of fast food archaeology? Is there anything in particular that... I hate, you know, when people just sensationalise something for the absolute sake of it. Um, like, um, every year there's something new and stupid about Stonehenge. They're like, ooh, uncovering the mystery of Stonehenge, Channel 4 tonight. That, that comes on at least once a year. And it's the same It's the same programme done in a completely different thing with different people and they come out with the same thing. So you've not uncovered anything. You've come up with the exact same conclusions and sold it to Channel 4 watches again. But that's, I mean, that's a product of, you know, like, uh, things that people are familiar with, they like, and so they that stuff gets, like, a lot of attention, and so because it gets a lot of attention, other people are like, oh, that's getting a lot of attention, oh, that's, I like that, and the cycle continues, it just keeps growing, and it means that you have this disparity between, like, sites that are really famous, that people know, and so they like, because they know, and other sites that don't get the attention yeah and that's why I, I like calling stonehenge the english ness of brogar <laughs> you know I, and brogdar brogdar i need to say it correctly <laughs> i've never been to the ness of brogdar but i i, I need to I go it's, it's one wonderful. of the is it is is it like is it like um is it the best oh no it's not the best is it almost the best stone circle in britain yeah it's definitely like top five top five <laughs> i feel like it i feel like we should have the like top of the pops music on like dun 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 dun, dun. top five stone <laughs> circles i i would say nessa brogdar brogar would be there stonehenge not even top 10 let's just put that out there not even top 10 <laughs> so i want to come around to experimental archaeology because you've said you're really really into kind of doing stuff like experimental archaeology you kind of like things that are something you can kind of do use your hands and stuff like that so 
you mentioned in the email about bellows. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about the bellows? I can, I can give you like a, a brief summary of my intentions for my dissertation if you like. That would be perfect. And then we can talk about smelting. Yes, okay. So, bellows. Um, they're for smelting. Um, I'm looking at a site in uh, Crete uh, where we have some evidence of, uh, or some potential evidence of some pot bellows, um, which is, they're basically a ceramic bellow with a leather uh, appendage on the top um, used to pump air through the bellows. It acts as like a one-way valve. Um, so I'm going to investigate that design with uh, maybe three different kinds of materials. Um, so with like, I'm considering using stomachs and I'm not sure how gory that's going to get, but um, I think it'd be really interesting. Um, I've seen some parallels with bellows and bagpipes and they have used stomachs with bagpipes. Um, you can still get, um, I think it's called a sheep's bag bagpipe. Um, where they still use sheep's uh, stomachs for the like the main part of the bagpipe, um, and I think that that's that seems to translate pretty well over to bellows. So there's obviously some parallels. So I'm investigating um, bagpipe designs used as bellows, if that makes any mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, does I mean does that mean you get to go to Crete? No. <laughs> well, that's that's a shame. I just get to sit on my patio and put blood all over it. Yeah. So. <laughs> Let me let me let me try and think. So, <laughs> where where do you even get it? Like a sheep stomach from? Like, do you ask the butcher? Like, <laughs> I was hoping the butcher would give me one. I have to use a food grade one because um, of health and safety. So that's going to be interesting. Food grade. <laughs> <laughs> of course. If I can't eat it, I'm not allowed to make bellows out of it. Okay, interesting. How do you how do you even like what what made you kind of think? Yeah, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get sheep stomachs and look at bellows. You've mentioned about doing <laughs> metallurgy, metallurgy and smelting. I mean, that seems to be something quite interesting to you. What in particular is it about like the smelting process that really interests you? Oh, I love it. Um, originally for my thesis, I wanted to do something about the, <coughs> excuse me, the performance aspects of smelting. There's a few cultures where on the videos, there's like obvious gender roles. Um, so the women are dancing and the men are pumping the bellows um, to smelt the furnace. And as they're pumping, there's quite a rhythmic noise and people are starting to play music and the women are starting to dance. And I thought that was really interesting. And you obviously get, um, if you do it at night, obviously it's going to be quite a show because the fire's glowing are going and there's the birthing canal as you call it will be glowing with um slag and stuff running out of it so it's quite an obvious performance and it's um going to be quite amazing to look at if you were at a smelt of like a ritual kind i think it'd be really interesting so originally for my thesis i wanted to look at that but current climate i can't do that anymore so i've had to do something that doesn't involve fire <laughs> I mean, you could just dig up part of the garden you know make a little furnace <laughs> so will you be you be eventually testing so you're going to be testing out with sheep stomachs what other materials would might have been used what, what kind of materials are you looking at possibly uh, i think sheep's stomachs um is probably the major one but um leather definitely mm-hmm. um obviously it's quite um, if you treat that it could be quite airtight mm-hmm. um, and work quite well for that kind of thing um, and my third fabric, I'm not sure. I'm going to have to look into it. I saw something in my reading today about someone using, uh, this is reading about bagpipes, but some, there was 
um, some historical evidence of someone using a dog's posterior um, as a bagpipe, <laughs> which is not something that I'm going to investigate, but it does show you there's quite a wide variety of um, animal material that you could use for this. Yeah, that is quite an odd, oddly specific. <laughs> I, I do want to know what was the thought process in, like, <laughs> behind that. Hmm. Yeah, I don't want to know what the process was. <laughs> Oh, that's that's good. That's good. And actually, just going back to smelting. So you've smelted iron, and what what else have you actually prepared? Uh, so far, just the iron. Mm-hmm. Um, we've just been casting for an experiment for my experimental archaeology module. We've just been casting chocolate into molds, um, and investigating the temper that would create the best mold. Um, to, it's basically just like an ingenious way of experimenting during the lockdown because mm-hmm. um, obviously we can't use metal or fire so we've cast chocolate into molds but it's been really interesting actually watching how they respond because we we have an inside group for the control and an outside group so my outside group got rained on and I think that that's actually made my molds better mm-hmm. um, and like I've been investigating how clear the, the chocolate cast comes out and some of my clearest chocolate casts were definitely from the outside group Okay, that's interesting. So, so far, just iron and chocolate. <laughs> that's fantastic. So that, that that's something you recommend. Leave your iron out in the rain and the chocolate will be better. Oh, your, your ceramic molds. Sorry, your ceramic chocolate. molds. Yeah, so... That, that, you know what? That is not information you're going to get from any other podcast, okay? That nope. Only here. <laughs> well, thank you very much for sitting down with me and talking to me. And uh, I wish you all the best in your Bellows research. And yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.